Let's have an added word of prayer. Father, as that scripture says, may we be clothed in righteousness, your righteousness. May we sing and have songs of joy, shouts of joy to you. And so before we leave here today, we pray that we will have this joy in our hearts and we will recognize what you have gone through to bring us to a right relationship with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you may have been in tune with the evening news yesterday. I was kind of oblivious until I sat down on my computer and my wife said, you know, there was an attempted shooting on the way from Amsterdam to Paris. And it happened on the Facebook page that somebody said that one of the individuals who stepped in to prevent it was actually from Roseburg, Oregon. So as, as I heard that and I was finishing up my, my sermon was done, I was just reviewing it. I said, wait a minute, that's an amazing story. Let's look into it. And as I looked into this story, here were these individuals, about 554, I believe one report said, New York Times said, who were traveling from Amsterdam to Paris in a high-speed train. Now, if you've traveled around Europe, you know you don't always rent a car. Sometimes you just get on the train, and you can go across with a uh, Europass or things like that. You can go across several borders without even checking into customs or anything like that. You're going into different countries. And in this case, that was a weakness of the system because this Moroccan individual had on him not only a rifle, uh, he had a handgun and a knife, and his goal was to inflict mayhem on that train. We don't know all the details at this point, but we do know one report says that these two off-duty servicemen, possibly one a Marine, possibly one a National Guard, we're not sure, these U.S. servicemen off-duty, recognized the, the threat. They watched him suspiciously go into the restroom, and when he came out, there was some kind of confrontation. Shots were fired, and the gentleman was taken down. Some were hurt, as this picture shows. And as I read through the story, and it even said in the story, we're still receiving reports. We still don't know all the details. We heard of people jumping out of the train once it stopped. We heard of bloody people uh, coming out and holding their hands, you know, uh, holding their hands up in blood. And so there's all kinds of stories that are out there. But as I listened to this story, and I, I received especially this one from the New York Times, it said that France sent their interior minister to, this, to Arras, where he com- commended the two Americans who had helped neutralize this extremely violent passenger, praising them for their great bravery and saying that without their sang-froid, or calmness under pressure, we could have been confronted with a terrible tragedy. France has been confronted with terrible tragedies, especially terrorist attacks, and this could have been another one of those tragedies. Yet it was prevented by two individuals who stepped in, risked their own welfare, and stood up to this tragedy. As I think of that, these great instances of bravery where people remain calm under pressure, preventing tragedy. Is it me or do, do you feel the same way? We need more of this type of bravery, more of this type of individuals who are willing to stand up against the evil in our world. More of this because it seems like to me, if you, at least if you're watching the news, which I don't do very often, report after report of negativity, of murder, of rape, of mayhem, of some kind of evil in our world. We need more heroes in our day and age, don't we? Every age has needed them. As I think back to our story of Rahab, there was somebody who needed rescuing, somebody who was steeped in that pagan culture, somebody who felt trapped, not only spiritually, but there they were inside the city of Jericho. And these two spies came to her, not two Marines or two servicemen, but two spies came to her, gave her that piece of hope 
that scarlet cord, which in the Hebrew, the word cord means hope, this hope that she could hang out on her home. And can you imagine Rahab now, watching the countryside, watching the Jordan River, seeing it's at flood stage, yes, but imagining the time is going to come when my deliverers will come for me. My God will send his deliverers. Now Jericho, we find different pictures of Jericho. You can kind of make out the city wall here a little bit. And part of it was up on a horseshoe-shaped hill. The city kind of spread out some, and part of it was overlooking the valley. Can you imagine being up there, and maybe, I'm, not, I'm just going to use my imagination, Rahab can see the whole valley and see the flooding Jordan River and see the, thousand, the thousands and millions of Israelites over there, over a million anyway, 600,000 plus women and children. Their campfires, their tents, maybe their banners for each tribe. Maybe the pillar of fire by night, the cloud by day, and say, any day now, any day, my deliverers will come. Hope is on the way. Yet those deliverers, those agents of hope, have some obstacles, don't they? We know the story. There's that flooding Jordan River. Not only that, there's the walls of Jericho. Not only that, there are these various city kings whom they're going to have to confront. Giants they're going to have to confront. Eventually, all the way over to the seafaring Philistines with their latest weaponry and armor. Huge obstacles. And yet, they begin to take steps of faith. And as I read about this, I thought about the Jordan River. I thought about Rahab and them watching, her family watching in anticipation. Surely, these Israelites can be seen as nothing less than heroes. Think about it. As you look throughout the Bible, you find there's one instance in Chronicles where the sons of Gad were known to be captains of hundreds and thousands. These were warriors. These were not just your everyday soldier. They were, they were individuals who were stationed over groups of troops, either hundreds or thousands. And these individuals went over the Jordan River in the first month when it had overflowed all of its banks. And they put all those in the valleys to flight toward the east and towards the west. Years later, the ones who would cross the Jordan in flood stage would be known as heroes, would be men of valor, would be known as mighty heroes of old. And yet, long before that, we have a whole group of people whom God is wanting to bring across so that that type of event can happen later on. The whole tribe would be having a name made for them because of their God. The whole tribe would be known as God's agents, and he would be their hero. But there were things that they would have to do first. The flood stage of the Jordan has been noted. We also note that this is not the usual crossing spot in the Jordan, because if you look in 2 Samuel, which I was reading my devotions this week, I noticed that when David came back after Absalom pursued him, that there was, they said, a usual crossing spot. Well, we're not told that this is a usual crossing spot. So whatever advantages it had, as far as being different places you would cross the Jordan, this is not the place necessarily to cross the Jordan where they're located. It doesn't mention it. The inhabitants on the other side are fearful, yet they have this small thread of hope that the flooded Jordan River would hold off the Israelites long enough until they could gather in their harvest. Because if they can gather in their harvest, at least they would have enough food to last a besiegement upon their city. At least they're hoping for that. And so that little bit of hope of what they're holding on to, Rahab is holding on to much more hope. Rahab hears reports of them preparing to cross, and she believes her deliverer is coming. I believe God had a plan for her life 
He has a plan for our lives as well, but there are steps we must take to fulfill our part of that plan. And in this story, we find that's exactly what happens. Go over to Joshua chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. As Joshua rose early in the morning, if you were leading that large group of people, you would know your dependence upon God was exactly what would cause you to be the leader that you needed to be. And I imagine Joshua getting up early in the morning, not just in this instance, but in many instances, seeking the Lord, trusting that the Lord would deliver. And it says they got up early in the morning and they moved from Shittim, or Acacia Grove, as some translations put it, and they came to the Jordan. Now some people were saying, why is so much repetition and so much re- repeating here going on in the book of Joshua? All right, did they have video cameras back then? No, so how did they rely upon telling a story in future generations? All right, oral tradition, you would pass it down. So you're telling one scene, right? And the camera, if we want to use our 21st century, is zooming in. Here's the Israelites. Joshua's getting up, and they're gathering. They've gathered together right there at the Jordan River, and they're preparing. They've lodged there, which means you can see their tents have all been set up. If you've ever been to camp meeting, you know all the tents that are set up, how much time it takes just for 2,000 people. Imagine the time it would take for over a million people to do that. And so it's recapping for you. It's not saying, oh yeah, they just got there, and right when they got there, they stuck their feet in, and right when they stuck their feet in, the Jordan parted. It's describing to you so that you could get the whole story, every piece of it. And what they do is they give you a little bit, and then they, tell, they, give, you, they give you a little bit of information, then they repeat it and add more to it and repeat it and add more to it. So you'll see that happening. And so there they are. They've pitched their tents. There's, all their flags are flying high. And it happened after three days, the officers went throughout the host, or the group, and they commanded the people saying, when you see the Ark of the Covenant of Jehovah your God and the priests, the Levites, bearing it, then you shall move from your place and go after it. Yet keep a space between you and it, about 2,000 cubits, some say 1,000 yards, by measure. Do not come near it so that you may know the way by which you must go. For you have not passed this way before now. You have an unknown journey ahead of you. God is the one that's going to lead you. You must keep focused on Him. Don't rush across the Jordan River. Not only would you trample each other, but you are to be focused upon the Lord and His servants as you cross the Jordan River. A thousand yards away for that many people really isn't that huge of a distance to cross. But imagine them getting together in an orderly fashion and looking as the priests go into the flooding Jordan River, they were to keep their eyes focused on the one who would deliver them, the Lord himself. Uh, Wesley notes it this way. He says, the idea of do not come near unto it. He says, partly from the respect they should bear to the ark, but chiefly that the ark marching so far before you into the river and standing still there till you pass over may give you the greater assurance of your safe passage. If you could see the ark, then you would know that the Lord is still keeping it apart for you, keeping the way clear for you. You have not passed this way before. He says, while we are here in this world, we must expect unusual events. Our news should not really cause any alarm. It's just the way life is, isn't it? To pathways that we have not passed before. It may cause revulsion, though. To pathways that we have not passed before, and much more when we go hence, when we pass through the valley of the shadow of death, or as our song said, as you go through Jordan. But if we have the assurance of God's presence, what have we to fear? If we have the assurance of God's presence, what have we to fear? To fear. That's what that ark was standing there for. That's what those Levites 
Who are those Levites reporting to? God and His presence. And as they waited, they weren't just standing there. Uh, you know how it is when you're getting ready to drive out a camp meeting and everybody's trying to get out of there. <laughs> We're not in a hurry. At this place, they are fixing their eyes upon God. As they wait, Joshua said, sanctify yourselves for tomorrow Jehovah will do wonders among you. As leaders, as people, our first work is to have our hearts right with God. And you and I know that on our own, we cannot do that. And so all of us need to be approaching God and saying, God, cleanse me. Forgive me. Help me be the person that you would have me to be. I see the peace that you have in others. I want that peace for myself. If you've never experienced it, that's exactly what you need to be praying. If you have experienced it, and say, Lord, I need your presence in my life anew today. And so who were they focusing on? Jehovah himself. Or some translations say Yahweh, which we know that's the same God of creation, the same God of the Exodus, the same God right here, and all the way down, and his name eventually becomes Jesus, Jesus. And so I believe we have journeys ahead of us personally, corporately, in our society, that we're going to need God to lead us. We're going to need Jesus himself to lead us to face those journeys. And what what am I going to do while I wait for his leadership? I'm going to sanctify my mind by spending time focusing on him daily. I'm going to watch him work wonders. I'm not going to focus in the mirror. I'm going to see my own defects as I look to the cross, as I look to my Christ but I'm going to be focusing on Him to lead me and take care of me. And I imagine as this is being said, uh, imagine if you're the back of the procession there. Imagine you're, you see that flooding Jordan River and you've got everybody lined up according to tribe and you're at the back of the procession there with your family and you're like watching and you see the priest step in and something begins to happen. What kind of excitement would bubble up in you there? What would be the natural human tendency to rush forward and to see, Right? But you would be waiting upon the Lord, trusting that by the time you get there, it would all be ready for you as well. And so watch God do a miracle, Joshua says. And Joshua spoke to the priests, saying, Take up the ark, pass over before the people. And they took up the ark of the covenant and went before the people. And so we are all focusing on God, asking Him to cleanse us, make us holy. We're focusing on Christ. But as leaders, leaders must lead. And I'm not saying always from the front either because this text makes clear that at some point they stand aside and watch the people go on by. So leaders need to lead. And I can tell you right now, it's going to be more than just me helping you here at Anderson that's going to make God's work come forth. You all sat here on Sabbath afternoons. You all had 10 days of prayer before we had our vision quests. We're continuing those prayer focuses because I recognize I am not the body. I am part of the body. And you are part of the body. And together, God will speak to us collectively and will lead us forth. And so I believe there is a plan that God has for us here at Anderson. Do I understand it completely? Do I understand it perfectly? No, but I'm trusting that God will reveal it to us corporately and we will move forward by faith. And I will have a role to play in that. I will keep pointing you to this God whom I love. Verse 7 says, Jehovah said to Joshua, Today I will begin to magnify you in the sight of Israel so that they may know that I will be with you as I was with Moses. It's almost like a transfer is going to take place, Joshua. Kind of like Elijah and Elisha, right? You know how that transfer took place. Not only did I lead Moses, but I'm going to lead you. You're going to become Mosaic in their eyes. And we'll come back to that later on. Keep tucked that away. And you shall command the priests 
that carry the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you have come to the brink of the waters of Jordan, you shall stand still in Jordan. We're always used to just rushing forward and doing stuff, but they're saying, Stand still in the Jordan. Why? Because you're going to watch something amazing happen. Why? You're going to put your feet right there on the banks of muddy Jordan, and those waters are going to overflow you, and sometimes you feel like it's going to take away your bearings. Stand still and see what I can do for you. Because it's not your ark, it's not your priestly garb, it's not your station, it's not anything having to do with your gifts, it's I myself who will go before, and you'll watch me split those waters. And so they had to get their feet wet. God was looking for the act of faith. But their part there, if you notice carefully, was stand still in the Jordan. I know what my tendency would be. Let's get on across here and get everybody across and let's move on. Sometimes leaders can be impatient. Stand still right there in the Jordan. And as you stand still, you're going to watch something happen. Joshua said to the sons of Israel, verse 9, Come here and hear the words of Jehovah now. By this you will know that the living God is among you, and he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites. You all know about them, right? They were an ancient empire known for the three-man shawlism on the ground and the three-man chariots. Powerful empire. It was hard to defeat. Even the Egyptians had trouble defeating them at one point, and they only did it because there was confusion in one of the battles. And the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, oh, those are the ones inside Jericho, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. So you're going to go stand in the Jordan River. And yes, I'm going to do something amazing. But what's more amazing is I'm going to go before you, long before you, and I'm going to set up each one of these kingdoms so that they will fall. Because I'm Lord of all the earth. I'm passing over before you into Jordan. So who is really splitting the waters? It's the one who later on walks on water. That's who is splitting the waters. He's the leader then. He's the leader in the New Testament. He's the leader today. He is splitting the waters. And he's saying, not only am I going to do something like that for you, I'm going to do something even more. I'm going to give you the land as well. Why is that important? Well, as I came to that scripture reading, and young people, here's your answer to your FBI question. Psalm 132 painted a beautiful picture. And not only did it describe us coming and joyfully worshiping before the Lord and and David's beautiful desire of having a house for the Lord, but as you read from verse 9 onward, it said, Let your priests be clothed with righteousness. Let your saints shout for joy. Why? Because they're coming before the Lord of hosts himself. And so if you go back to Psalm 132, verse 10, it says, For your servant David's sake, do not turn away the face of your anointed. The Lord has sworn in truth to David. He will not turn from it. I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. So what is God promising David? Yes, you're going to have an ark, which we find originates in the Mosaic times. Yes, you're going to have my presence, but my plan goes beyond your time, David. Way down to the fruit of your body the descendant from your body, the anointed one himself. That's God's focus. David is focused on making the temple and making everything right, but God is focused on the plan of salvation, that the Messiah himself would come and come into that temple and usher us into the temple itself. If your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony, which I shall teach them, their sons also shall sit upon your throne forevermore. We know that that didn't always happen. For the Lord has chosen Zion. Where is Zion at? Jerusalem, right? 
Jerusalem was the city of the Jebusites. Remember that? God told them, you're going to cross the Jordan, you're going to conquer even the Jebusites. Why? Because God has a plan that the Messiah will come to that very place in human form in the future. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. I will also clothe her priests with salvation. Her saints shall shout aloud for joy. There I will make the horn of David grow, or his uh, throne or his power. I will prepare a lamp for my anointed one. We know who that is. That's Christ. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall flourish, or some translations mentioned it will continue on. And so who is this talking about? It's not talking about David. This is years after the time of this flooding incident that God said, I'm going to give you the place of the Jebusites. Why? Because the Messiah is going to come there. And why is the Messiah going to come there? Because he's got an eternal throne that he wants to establish in this world and vanquish all evil. He really wants to step in and undo and undermine all evil in this world. So really, those soldiers were showing the heart of God in a limited fashion to those who were on that train as well because they were risking their lives for the the safety of those. And Jesus comes and gives his life for the salvation of us. And so as I look at that plan in Psalm 132, which really echoes down from the beginning of the Bible to Jericho, the Jebusites being conquered, to this point where the Messiah would come to that very place, I recognize that the plan didn't stop with Jesus, that it involves you and me. Watch these details unfold. Joshua chapter 3, verse 12 and 13, Joshua admonishes people, and it says he admonishes them as Moses did. It's like a transfer is being taken place again. It's mentioning it again. And it continues on from there, in verse 14 onward. It happened when the people moved from their tents to pass over Jordan, and the feet of the priests that bore the ark were dipped into the edge of the water, for Jordan overflows all its banks at all the time of harvest, all the time of harvest, not just part of it, that the waters which came down from above stopped and rose up all of it in a heap very far from the city of Adam that is beside Zaratan. And those that came down toward the sea of the plain, the salt sea, were completely cut off and the people passed over across from Jericho. And so those muddy banks that we talk about standing upon in that song, they were literally dry. People debate as to where this, this city of the city Adam is and all of that, but nonetheless, it's big enough of a distance for this huge multitude to move across. Who has the strength to do something like that? I mean, God in his little pinky finger could just go and just move the water right there. and There it is in a heap. Or just send one of his, his weakest angels, if you want to call them that. I think they're all strong beyond belief. And they could just hold that water back. Or he could just breathe like his Holy Spirit in Genesis chapter 1, and that wind would hold it back. I mean, he doesn't even have to touch the waters, and it's held back. We know it's not the priest. We know it's not the ark. We know it's God himself because the text said, he will go before you. He's right there holding back the waters. What waters is he holding back in your life? What obstacles do you face and I face that we need to allow him to take care of for us? All he's telling us to do is just show a little bit of faith, put your feet in the water, and I'll take care of the rest. Isn't that simple? Isn't that gracious? Put your feet in the water so you remember that it was a really wet, muddy day, and I dried it all up before you. 
And so the muddy banks become dry, and the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant stood firm on dry ground. They weren't slipping and sliding with that Ark. They weren't somehow losing grip on it like we find in other accounts later on. They're on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, and all the Israelites passed over on dry ground until all the people passed completely over the Jordan. Imagine that huge procession, and imagine you're now setting up your tents on that west side of the Jordan River, looking back in amazement how far God has led you. And then he's told, don't just, don't let him set up camp and forget tonight and think it's all a dream. Uh, take 12 stones from here out of the middle of the Jordan, out of the place where the priest's feet stood firm. He keeps mentioning that. Those priests were standing firm, holding that ark there as the people went by. And you shall carry them over with you. Leave them in the place where you shall stay tonight. Can you imagine? You wake up the next morning <clears throat> and it's just, Strange feeling like you've just lived through a dream. Did that really happen? Did we really walk across on dry ground? And you look out and you see right outside by your campsite this huge mound of stones set over there. Not just small little, little rocks. These are boulders. It talks about them hefting them up on their shoulders. Huge stone mound sitting there. You would know, no, it was not a dream. And neither is the future that God has in store for me. He will lead me all the way. And it happened when the priests who carried the ark had come up out of the middle of the Jordan. The soles of the feet of the priests were lifted up to the dry land. The waters then returned to their place and flowed over all its banks. Back to flood stage, just like before. Then you shall let your sons know when they see those stones, Israel came over on dry land. That's how they got those stones out of that Jordan River. Have you ever been to a river that looks real calm and all of that and when it's not in flood stage and then all of a sudden when flood stage comes it's just muddy chaotic mess you would never want anything to do with i would i would venture to say it'd be hard for you to bring one huge stone like that out of just the real calm river let alone bringing it out at flood stage those rocks would stand there as a memorial that it was humanly impossible to do such a thing from the middle of the river to get those stones but obviously God made a way. And obviously those stones are from the middle of the river. The question would be, do you believe it? Do you believe the miracle can still happen today? That would be the challenge from every generation. And that's a challenge for our generation as well. Do we believe this miracle can still happen today? It says if we do, you would fear Jehovah your God forever. You would say, God, if you can do that, Surely you can help me face these Jebusites. Surely you can help me face these giants at Gath. Surely you can help me face this spiritual fog that we're in. We're looking for the Messiah. We don't see him. Surely you can send someone to help us understand and clear the way. And how does this point to our leader? Because the story doesn't end there. You look at these characteristics of this story, and as I was going through them, I thought of more. A mosaic figure whose name means Yahweh helps or Yahweh is salvation. Where else do we find that in the Bible? A, prior to the priestly feet entering the muddy Jordan, there's a call to holiness. Now you start getting a sequence in your mind here. Then the priest and leader in the middle of the Jordan River, they're getting their feet wet. In essence, these people in the Jordan River were overcoming where the Israelites failed before, are they not? And we find the same thing happens later in Scripture. God was present with tokens of his presence. Was God present then? Yeah, he had the ark. He had the priest standing in his place. Leap showing them to go this way, and he himself went and parted the waters. The obstacle in front of 
him, that's the Lord, when he went before them, was removed. The Jordan was totally heaped up. Then there's a rock memorial set up for future generations to see. The way was prepared for victory and deliverance for captives such as Rahab. And the question is, where else do we find someone who, after giving a promise, comes with his ark to get his people? Rahab received a promise, and now you find his ark coming, and he's going to receive her as one of his people. If you cannot see Jesus in this, I don't know where else you would see Jesus in the Scriptures. I mean, who is the Mosaic figure? It's none other than Jesus. It wasn't the angel who won who said, he will save his people from their sins. He is salvation. Isn't he the one who John the Baptist came before and called them to holiness before? Repent, right? That message of repentance. Isn't he the one whom you have John the Baptist, who, by the way, is of Levitical origin, right? His family is. And you have Jesus, who's of Davidic, Mosaic origin. They're standing right there in the middle of the Jordan River at his baptism. It's like the two meet together. And right there, we find a token of his presence, the Holy Spirit coming down in bodily form like a dove. Later on, saying, this is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. That is repeated at the transfiguration. And at the cross, God rumbles from heaven and covers his son in darkness. Not only that, at the cross, we find uh, there's an obstacle in front of him that's removed. It wasn't at death itself that we needed to be having removed from our world and from our lives. He faced it, conquers it, goes into the rock tomb, and then there's that rock memorial set up for future generations. Imagine the angel rolling that stone back, sitting upon the stone, and not only that, you've got this rock tomb and this stone there, and the story that there is a risen Savior. So the memorials are there for us. The cross and his resurrection. And I don't know what else could prepare us to have deliverance in our lives more so than his conquering Satan at the cross and his life forevermore after the cross. And some people don't like the cross being mentioned as a real focal point. Sorry, but if you don't like that, there's so many scriptures that point to the death blow that occurred at the cross. And then especially as he was resurrected, taking captives from the grave, he proves that Satan was defeated at the cross. Now, we don't want to focus on a dead Savior because that's a dangerous place to focus. Satan loves to think of a dead Savior. He wants us to remember that he's dead, but he's alive. So yes, the cross does stand there and the way is prepared for us. And we have a promise given to us that says, someday I will come again. Soon and very soon. And John says, come Lord Jesus. And what does he see Jesus coming with this beautiful new Jerusalem? And inside the city is the ark. And so the ark is there as well. And I look at the cross and I look at everything Jesus went through and he got more than his feet wet, didn't he? Yes, he was wet in the Jordan River, but he got more than his feet wet. He bled and died for each one of us, saying, I have come to deliver you. Will you trust in me? So Jesus is our leader who will lead us. He's the one who went before them then. And that type of rescue plan that he had for Rahab and her family and any people of faith in the land of Canaan, he still has for us today. If he would go to the extent that he went to to get my attention so I wouldn't miss a flight, as trivial as that may seem, isn't he going to more extensive measures to get our attention for salvation? To say, I have a better plan for you. This world will offer you money. This world will offer you all kinds of glitter and glamour. It will offer you temporary pleasures which will turn into nightmares. But I will offer you something that will never fade. 
And so, yes, we need that corporate revival. Yes, we need leaders who are going to lead, but mostly we need to recognize that God has rescued us and He wants us to go forward and rescue other people. I was looking at this quotation as I was reading a little bit of my private time with God. It says, Satan again, after the cross, counseled with his angels with bitter hatred against God's government, told them that while he retained his power and authority upon earth, their efforts must be tenfold stronger against the followers of Jesus. Why? Because after the cross, we find in Revelation, it says, woe to you inhabitants of the earth, for the devil has come down to you, right? We've had this, this woe going on. And the only way we can overcome is by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. And so they recognized that, and they go forth like raging lions. They had prevailed nothing against Christ, but must now overthrow his followers, if possible, in every generation, every generation, they must seek to ensnare those who would believe in Jesus. So what's the goal? To get you to not believe in Jesus. To get you not to focus on him. You can read this Bible from cover to cover, know all the languages, translate it flawlessly from the original languages, and write commentaries that tear down the Bible. Do you know that? It doesn't matter how much you know. It matters who you know. It matters if you could turn every page of this book and see this Jesus. I challenge you to do that. I'm going verse by verse through this book, and I'm spending 20 minutes on each verse, and I'm trying to find Jesus in each verse. I challenge you to do that. You will see him everywhere. This story of Joshua, I could take it apart and show you him more times than I've showed you here just now. He is everywhere. And Satan wants to ensnare us by not seeing him anywhere. Our world's messed up. Our people are messed up. And there's messed up things that happen at church and outside of church. He wants us to focus on those things. But he's, that's what Satan wants us. But God says, no, look at what I've done for you. Focus on me. He related to his angels, Satan did, that Jesus had given his disciples power to rebuke them, cast them out, and to heal those whom they should afflict. This kind of power means the story of Rahab is repeated in every generation, person by person, that's set free by the gospel. This muddy Jordan River story means you have to trust God by saying, you know what, God, I trust you, I love you, I see what you've done for me. Use me now. I'm faulty, but use me now to help others see you as well. And that would be like sticking your feet in the Jordan River. You would have that priestly ministry. So Satan wants us to forget. Jesus wants us to remember. I don't know about you, but I choose to remember. And I could think of Rahab there. Imagine her seeing them come. Imagine the amazement as the Jordan splits. And imagine the fear that came upon, upon those who watched in amazement who were inside the city of Jericho and were following the king of Jericho. It happened when all the kings of the Amorites, that includes Jericho, who were on the west side of the Jordan, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that Jehovah had dried up the waters. Who had done it? Jehovah. Oh, the very one who can preserve a million people in the wilderness and give them food and water in the wilderness. Keep them from killing each other in the wilderness. Keep them from killing their leader in the wilderness. I mean, this very one who defeated the Egyptians now is upon our doorposts. How can we stand against him? They heard that Jehovah had dried up the waters of the Jordan in front of the sons of Israel until they had passed over, and their hearts melted. Would you want to go to battle against that God, let alone all his people? I mean, just that God alone coming to face your whole nation or your whole king state, it would be enough. Neither was their spirit in them anymore. They did not have the courage to fight this 
God and his army. Would you want to be those people in that city? Or would you want to be this lady, watching in amazement, saying, here is my God. He will come and save me. That's really where this story ends. Who will you be in this story? You say, well, I'd like to be one of the Israelites. I don't want to be one of the ones in the city. <laughs> okay. Well, she becomes an Israelite, and we all know she becomes a descendant of Jesus. And so she watches in amazement. She knows God had a plan for her life. That's why he sent those two spies to rescue her. How about us? Do we know he has a plan for our life? Do we know what steps we need to take next? We need to seek him for those. If we do, we'll get our feet wet. And we'll watch in amazement as something more amazing happens than a muddy river parting. Can you imagine? There we are. End of time. Everything's going awry. Everything evil that you can imagine is happening in the world. And we see this cloud the size of a man's hand coming right towards our world. Elijah saw it in his day. He saw this cloud forming over the sea. And we see it in our day, and this comes closer and closer. The next thing you know, there's rumblings, there's earthquakes. The sky begins to just roll back like, like a scroll or a split, as some translations say. It just opens up. And there is someone, a Mosaic priestly king, who said, I would come back for you. His robe has been dipped in blood, looks scarlet. And he says, come my people. We travel to the heavenly city that has the ark, and by the way, the river of life, not the muddy Jordan. And it will all be because we held on to that hope in him, and we took those steps of faith. And I don't know about you, but I'm going to walk up to that river of life. Just remember this Jordan River story, and I'm going to walk up to it after I meet Jesus and spend time with everybody I want to spend time. I'm going to walk up to that river of life. I'm going to stick my feet in there and just let it flow over. And I'm going to remember, yeah, I got my feet wet a little bit in this world. I took steps of faith a little bit in this world, but look, wasn't heaven cheap enough? And you all will say yes. And I will say yes as well. Because we marched through this old world up to the place where he led us to. And so I encourage you, whatever you may be facing, allow the Lord to lead you. Take those steps of faith. You know exactly what, you're t- what I'm talking about. And as a group, let's walk and journey together with him through this old world into that beautiful place that he has prepared for us. Oh, Father, when shall we see your face? Oh, Lord, we look forward to that day when we will see your face. We will leave this old world and then come back to it to watch it be made all new the way you intended it to be in the first place. Guide us through all the struggles we may face here now in this world. Help us to join your hand, put it in ours, and walk with you each step of the journey, even if it means getting our feet wet and going through some troublesome times, some huge obstacles. We trust you, Lord, and we look forward to seeing you. In Jesus' name, amen.